a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. All right, welcome everybody. Coming up on the big show, more Americans are reaching a, a tipping point when it comes to tipping or the tipping culture as prices keep on climbing. Plus, businesses explore the opportunities and challenges that comes with generative AI at Fortune's Brainstorm AI event. First, President Xi is on a two-day uh, state visit to Vietnam, calling relations uh, a priority in the neighborhood diplomacy. They've announced dozens of deals in railways and telecommunications. Uh, next, meetings with Vietnam's state leaders, including the president and prime minister. Vietnam rolled out the red carpet on Tuesday for Xi Jinping, general secretary of the CPC Central Committee and Chinese president, as he began his first state visit to the Southeast Asian nation since 2017. His visit came as the socialist neighbors celebrate the 15th anniversary of the comprehensive strategic cooperative partnership. In written remarks released upon his arrival, Xi Jinping said he expects to have an in-depth exchange of views with Vietnamese leaders on strategic matters critical to the future of the two parties and two countries. International and regional issues of common concern are also on the agenda. Following his arrival, President Xi was given a warm welcome on the streets of Hanoi. Xi, accompanied by Nguyen Phu Chong, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam Central Committee, was honoured at a welcoming ceremony with a 21-gun salute. After the ceremony, Xi and Chong held a meeting, during which Xi Jinping said as brothers, the two sides are pleased to see the achievements Vietnam has made over its 40 years of reforms, especially since the 13th National Congress of the Communist Party of Vietnam. China firmly supports Vietnam's socialist construction and believes the Communist Party of Vietnam and the Vietnamese government will be able to successfully complete all tasks set out in the Congress. Xi Jinping said China and Vietnam have supported each other in their respective struggles for national independence and liberation and have learned from each other's reforms, opening up and innovations. He said China has always seen its relations with Vietnam from a strategic and long-term perspective. He believes China-Vietnam relations will enter a new stage of greater political mutual trust with more solid security cooperation, deeper mutually beneficial cooperation, stronger popular support and better management and resolution of differences. Xi said China and Vietnam will continue to make new achievements in the cause of socialist construction and make new contributions to regional and world stability, development and prosperity. Xi Jinping put forward several suggestions on building a China-Vietnam community with a shared future. He called on the two sides to adhere to high-level strategic guidance, strengthen exchanges and mutual learning on party and state governance, firmly supported each other on issues concerning each side's core interests and major concerns, and jointly upheld international equity and justice. On security issues, Xi pointed out that both sides must give top priority to safeguarding national political security. He said China firmly supports Vietnam in maintaining social stability and ethnic unity and believes that Vietnam will continue to support China in opposing external interference and firmly advancing the cause of national reunification. Xi Jinping also called for enhanced people-to-people -people exchanges and further bilateral cooperation in agriculture, education, healthcare and other areas concerning people's livelihood. He said the two sides should strengthen coordination on international and regional affairs and made it clear that China does not engage in exclusive cliques, block politics or camp confrontation.
on maritime issues, Xi stressed the need to manage differences. He said the two sides should actively explore and cooperate more on maritime projects, strive to promote joint maritime development, and turn the challenges brought by maritime issues into opportunities for deepening bilateral cooperation. Nguyen Fu Chong welcomed Xi Jinping on his state visit to Vietnam and congratulated Xi on the achievements made under the CPC 20th Party Congress. Chong said Vietnam acknowledges China's accomplishments and rising influence. He said Vietnam hopes China will realize its goals and contribute to the progress of the society under the party's leadership. Chong honored Xi's leadership as a friend of Vietnam and praised the friendship between the two countries. He said his invited visit to China after the CPC's 20th Congress and Xi's third state visit to Vietnam demonstrated the special friendship and high-level relations between the two countries. He mentioned his planting of trees at Friendship Pass, hoping will send out a positive signal and be a symbol of brotherhood. Chong said Hanoi appreciates China's firm support of Vietnam's reforms and opening up industrialization and modernization. Chong also thanked China for its help during the COVID-19 pandemic. Vietnam said it acknowledges Taiwan as a part of China and supports China's reunification. The Vietnamese leader said Hanoi will adhere to the One China principle. He also said Vietnam stands against all forces of interference in China's domestic affairs. Hanoi hopes Beijing will maintain stability, growth and prosperity. Hanoi also said it adheres to an independent foreign policy and sees relations with China as a top priority and strategic choice. Vietnam wants to build a strategic community with a shared future with China. It also wants to boost cooperation in politics, trade, security and people-to-people -people exchanges. Chang said an exemplar bilateral ties of mutual benefit is of common interest for both sides. Hanoi said maritime conflicts do not define ties with Beijing and the issues can be properly managed with mutual trust and respect. Chang said he believes that Xi's visit will push bilateral ties to new heights and be conducive to world peace. After the meeting, the two leaders witnessed the signing of a wide range of agreements which cover over 30 sectors such as the Belt and Road Initiative, green development and digital economy. The two leaders also shared a tea break and shared their determinations of modernization. Both sides expressed a willingness to issue a joint declaration to enhance the partnership and build a strategic community with a shared future. For more on this, we're joined by uh, Joseph Gregory uh, Mahoney. He's the Professor of Politics and International Relations at the East China Normal University in Shanghai. Uh, good to see you. Thank you for your time. Um, so we don't talk about this topic very often, so let's start with at least regionally, why is this relationship between China and, and Vietnam important? Well, I feel uh, good morning from Shanghai and good evening in Washington. Uh, you know, Southeast Asia is uh, very, very important uh, as a rising uh, economic uh, power in its own right, and, and Vietnam is clearly uh, one of the uh, major parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, and we know that in recent years, um, uh, China's relationship with Southeast Asia has been, uh, on the whole, very positive, but it's also been troubled by issues like uh, maritime security and maritime borders. And we know that uh, other countries, uh, uh, including uh, the United States, have uh, tried to exploit some of those frictions in order to uh, facilitate uh, uh, Washington-led containment policies and the like. Uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, China and uh, Southeast Asia uh, relations continue to advance. And uh, most specifically, uh, I think where we have seen those advances uh, really moving forward, despite a sometimes difficult history, is between China and Vietnam. And indeed, I think they have uh, set a model 
uh, for improved uh, regional relations uh, uh, throughout uh, Asia. Yeah, I, I want to push back a little bit. I mean, you mentioned the containment policy, and I guess that leads to sort of um, the relationship with Vietnam and the U.S., because that also is a, a good relationship as well. So Vietnam ends up being sort of having two good relationships. Why is this, or what do you think the reaction of, of Washington will be? You know, you, you saw the package, you, you saw what we've said. Um, the West clearly has an interest in Vietnam. There's a number of multinational firms operating in Vietnam, in part to diversify their supply chains out, out of China. Well, you know, there was a report that uh, Joe Biden, of course, uh, visited uh, Vietnam in September because he was worried that Vietnam was tilting in the direction of uh, China. And then we've seen reports in the West that uh, President Xi was visiting Vietnam because there was you know, worries after uh, Biden's visit that, that Vietnam might be tilting in the direction of, of the U.S. Of course, you know, uh, President Xi's visit is the culmination of a, three, a series of three visits that have been uh, planned and, and uh, developing over the past year. Um, in fact, uh, I think that um, uh, Vietnam has made it clear that they are in, uh, pursuing a, a diverse, uh, independent foreign policy. Um, and uh, I think this is good for China. Um, it, it, uh, although uh, Vietnam's uh, biggest trading partner is by far China, um, we know that um, uh, that even before the U.S. trade war uh, against China, that a number of uh, jobs were leaving uh, the Chinese market and moving to Vietnam. This was a, a positive uh, development um, uh, for both countries. And we know that despite uh, some American efforts to diversify their supply chains, that a lot of the, the supply chains that are now being uh, located in Vietnam are actually downstream from, from Chinese uh, um, uh, supply chains. And indeed, right. that a lot of the factories in Vietnam are benefiting from Chinese investment and Chinese machinery. It, it is fascinating, I think, you know, when we talk about diversification, they're so interconnected in ways that, you know, we only touch on the surface of it. But if you dig a little deeper, as, as you uh, insinuated, that they're, 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 the ties are deep. Um, when it comes to these agreements, a lot of them are on infrastructure. And uh, no secret that China um, has been the leader in infrastructure, um, especially in Asia, especially in that region. Um, for Vietnam, they've had a deep relationship already in the past. What's the next step forward for this? Well, you know, I, I, as your lead-in noted, uh, there were more than 30 uh, um, uh, agreements, or, or, or agreements covering more than 30 areas, and these included things like green development and BRI and, and uh, infrastructure. Um, I think I think what's really fascinating uh, for me is that uh, we know that BRI and these other initiatives are uh, key aspects of, of Chinese foreign policy. We know that it's part of China's uh, efforts to cultivate goodwill, particularly with uh, uh, near neighbors. We know that BRI has been a powerful mover in Southeast Asia and, and that uh, Vietnam has embraced it. Uh, I think that, uh, as we have seen with, with uh, uh, the, a number of the agreements, that uh, the China-Vietnam relationship uh, has grown to epitomize uh, the Chinese principle of uh, emphasizing common ground while reserving differences. Uh, but above all, you know, this, this key talking point that we heard from the Vietnamese leadership community with a shared future, I think this really demonstrates uh, the, the overall trajectory of the ties and how they will continue to uh, impact economic and, and bilateral trade relations. You look at the two countries, um, they share a lot in common when it comes to exports. They're both heavily export-driven. They both have um, uh, an amazing domestic consumption uh, economy that they're, they're both building, and, and they're considered probably the, the economic you know, center for entrepreneurism. 
in some ways, they're, they're, friendly, they're competing on a, on a very friendly basis. Vietnam seems to be the winner. They're going to get you know, everybody courting them just purely because of the situation they're in. For China, what does China get? Well, you know, I think that China's uh, position has been that, uh, you know, there can be win-win uh, relationships, that, that what is good for Vietnam isn't necessarily bad uh, for China. As we've already said, you know, a lot of the uh, supply chains in, in Vietnam are actually downstream from Chinese supply chains. So as long as uh, uh, trade is good for Vietnam, it, it probably has carryover effects. Certainly, uh, 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 China is investing in Vietnam through BRI. And as long as uh, uh, Vietnam has good uh, has a good economy and strong relations with other countries, uh, those BRI investments will pay off uh, down the road. So uh, this, in addition to, you know, in, uh, uh, as President Xi has noted on several occasions, that uh, uh, better development means better security um, and uh, that closer ties uh, it, it, uh, helps facilitate um, um, uh, greater security. Um, we know that, um, uh, that, that the relationship will continue to move forward. All right. Um we shall see what announcements uh, come out. Uh, Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney, uh, thank you for your time on this important topic. Uh, before traveling to Vietnam, President Xi also chaired the uh, Central Economic Work Conference in Beijing. Much of that focused China's economic recovery and challenges. Zhang Chunying has more. The highly anticipated conference underscored uh, the general principle of um, advancing progress while ensuring stability. And one of the key takeaways from the meeting signals China's strong commitment to spurring domestic demand, uh, strengthening uh, the economic recovery in the coming year. It also addresses the challenges such as uh, insufficient domestic demand, uh, its weak social expectations, uh, and this overcapacity in certain industries. Uh, when it comes to the uh, macroeconomic policies, officials say that they will implement a proactive fiscal policy and a prudent monetary policy, which they describe as, quote-unquote, uh, flexible, moderate, precise, and effective. And also a new round of fiscal, financial, and institutional tax reforms is also slated for next year, with a focus on encouraging the growth of venture capital and equity uh, investment. And in response to China's housing market, which has drawn global concern over the past year, the government pledged to speed up so-called a new model of realistic development and coordinate the resolution of local debt rifts. And the meeting also touched upon the roadmap ahead for continued opening up with a commitment to enhancing the resilience of this industrial and supply chain uh, while fostering the growth of development of its private enterprises. So uh, the message is uh, very clear, and we can uh, probably expect a slew of policies aimed at bolstering economic vitality over the coming year. And despite some uh, pessimistic forecasts from the West, uh, according to some of the experts and economists that I spoke to, they remain optimistic about China's uh, growth outlook in both in short term as well as long term. Next up, we uh, head over uh, to the other side of the Pacific. Uh, we'll look at the latest inflation numbers for the U.S. Plus, tipping culture is entrenched in the U.S., but our gratuity is getting out of control. Back in one. The world economy as we know it is about to change. Global business reports highlight emerging markets, developing countries, and dynamic sectors worldwide. We feature top analysts and newsmakers to provide perspectives on every facet of business. 
From an on-the-ground perspective, we provide you with balanced and objective assessments. Fast, sharp, and insightful. Global Business. Only on CGTN. Welcome back. Uh, November U.S. core inflation dropped, but the economic picture is a little more complicated because there's a big Fed rate decision coming up on Wednesday. Owen Faircloth has more. It may be just a fraction, but in the fight to tame inflation, the latest numbers are another sign for policymakers that they're finally winning the battle. Inflation in November dropped to 3.1% on an annual basis from 3.2% in October. And that's largely due to a significant drop in fuel price inflation, down nearly 10%. The average US gas price is now around $3.15 a gallon, a little bit more at this gas station behind me in Washington, D.C. But that's nevertheless nearly $2 less than back in the summer of 2022 when inflation was running out of control. The cost of food bought in places like grocery stores is also under control, but the price of eating out rose more than 5%, and the cost of transportation services grew more than 10%. And so it's individual metrics like those that suggest to some policymakers there's still some work to do to chase inflation out of the broader economy. But at just over 3%, core inflation is now near the 2% mark, that the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, targets by raising or lowering interest rates. And that's one reason why many economists expect the Fed to leave interest rates on hold on Wednesday after hiking them dramatically over the past year or so. Owen Fairclough, CGTN, Washington. And speaking of inflation, the prices of goods and services, of course, has gone up, but so has the average tips or tips that customers are expected to pay. Some call it tipflation and wary consumers say they're reaching their tipping point. Isabella Diaz has more. Tipping in the U.S. has usually been a practice reserved mostly for waiters and waitresses, bartenders and beauticians. But in recent years, it seems more businesses and service providers expect a tip upon transaction. According to Pew Research, 72% of U.S. adults say tipping is expected in more places than it was just five years ago. That's cool. It's great. Except most U.S. consumers say it's not. Whether it's adding an extra 10% for an Uber driver or tacking on an additional $5 for a food delivery courier, most say they've had enough. A summer survey by Bankrate found 66% of U.S. adults had a negative view of tipping, with one in three saying tipping culture has gotten out of control. Just last month, online food delivery platform DoorDash sparked controversy when its app warned customers if they skip the tip, drivers may skip their order. And then there's service charges. Restaurants have been including them for a while, but those service charges have grown since the COVID-19 pandemic. With COVID cases declining, Businesses have kept the charges. Some even added more. And while restaurants vary on what exactly those service charges go toward, there's a consensus among U.S. consumers that those extra charges have to go. Economists say one reason for tip fatigue is cashless payment apps. Start taking payments your way with Square. According to data from credit card processor Square, nearly 75% of remote transactions for food and beverage now prompt the customer to leave a tip. Why the big push? One financial services industry expert says it's because app makers get a cut of the total 
incentivizing them to add the tipping option. Your customer can select a tip if she likes and sign. Even when users do decide to tip, how much is too much versus just the right amount? According to Statista, a third of Americans say the sweet spot is somewhere between 16 and 20 percent. Isabella Diaz, CGTN. Just, uh, just fascinating stuff. Um, for more insight into this tipping culture, uh, some call it it's in the U.S., uh, we're going to bring in Michael Lynn, Professor of Consumer Behavior and Marketing at Cornell University's uh, School of Hotel Administration. Welcome to the show. Um, I have so many questions. Let me start with this. Some say these businesses should just pay their employees more and, and do away with this sort of expected uh, tipping that all of us have now, I guess, been accustomed to. Sure, that's an option. The problem is that in order to pay their employees more, they're going to have to raise menu prices. People have this mistaken view that because tips reduce labor costs, that it's a bonanza for the business. But that's just not true. Almost certainly, those labor savings get passed on to consumers in the form of lower prices. Um, and so tipping doesn't subsidize the business. What it does is it lets wealthy and generous consumers subsidize the patronage of less wealthy, less generous consumers. Right, but one could also argue that um, regular customers who are not wealthy, who partake in uh, ordering takeout, whether it's uh, Uber Eats or wherever you go, that those tips um, make the actual product or service more expensive, and, all, and ultimately that is uh, an inflation element for regular folks. Consumers, you're absolutely right that when I'm expected to tip, that's an additional cost that I should logically add into the primary legally mandated payment. Uh, but we know that consumers don't do that. They tend to ignore tips when they evaluate the expensiveness of businesses. Uh, and so one problem businesses have, if they were to eliminate tipping and increase their menu prices 20%, the, the actual end of experience cost is the same across those two settings. But consumers are going to think that they're more expensive in the option without tipping. Right. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but since the pandemic, and we're a couple of years now you know, past that, um, many restaurants have raised their menu prices uh, more than 20 percent. Um, and, and, and tipping, of course, is still expected. And then on top of that, there's these, these um, service charges. Sometimes they call them different names, but I, I think you get the idea. It's an additional service charge or a credit card fee or additional fee. And, and some were expecting these all to kind of go away post-pandemic, but, but here they are. And of course, they're not going away. One, where does that money go to? And two, are they permanently here to stay? Where does the money go to? If it's called a service charge, uh, then the business gets to keep the money and use it how it wants under federal law. Some state laws are different. In New York, for example, service charges are treated like tips. So restaurants are starting to charge administrative fees instead of service charges. Um, but ultimately, service charges, administrative fees, all of these other add-on expenses that are being added to bills, that money goes to the business. Uh, we do know from academic research that people hate these kinds of add-on charges. They can tolerate one, but 
two, three, four, and they feel like they're being nickeled and dimed to death and they don't like it. Will this continue? I suppose that depends upon what consumers are upset and they're expressing that upset verbally. When they start expressing their upset behaviorally by switching who they do business with, that's when you'll see pressure on businesses to get rid of these additional fees, uh, tip requests, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask no, you this, no. you know, so let me switch gears very slightly. Um, we go out to eat quite a bit, all, all of us do at one point or, or another, and you always scratch your head, you know, you're at a nice, nice restaurant, how much should you tip? You're at, um, you're, you're at a fast food place, how much should you, should you tip? You order something to go to, to pick up, to take it back to the office. Should you tip, or, and how much should you tip? Because I, I think all three are different levels, and I say this because in the past, tipping was associated with a, a thank you, a polite thank you or appreciation for something the service worker has done, but now, of course, it's expected, and a lot of people scratch their heads they're not sure even how much to tip sometimes. So many places to go with that. Um, to begin with, tipping is only weakly related to service quality, even in restaurant settings where you would expect it to have a strong relationship. Uh, the average correlation is 0.2. That means 4% of the differences in tips left by different dining parties can be explained by their own evaluations of the service. So tipping really has never been primarily about rewarding good service. It is primarily in a tip by the tipper to buy the approval of the server and perhaps other onlookers. Um, that's the main motivation for tipping. Should you tip? First off, let me say I'm not an etiquette expert, but even if I claim to be an etiquette expert, you shouldn't necessarily trust me. Tipping norms don't come from the top down. There's no tipping God who tells you what you should do. Ultimately, tipping norms evolve from the behavior of consumers. We know most people tip in restaurants and servers then expect that tip and they will look down on people who don't give it because it's so common, so frequently done. Uh, I feel obligated to tip in restaurants. I do not feel obligated to tip. And in fact, I do not tip for restaurant carryout, and most of the time for counter service. Unless I ask for some special treatment, the drink they make on standard drink, then I'll tip, otherwise, no. But that's my assessment. Right, right, right. I, Michael Lynn, uh, professor at Cornell University, uh, a fascinating topic, uh, good to have you on. Uh, we went a little longer than we expected, um, but it was very interesting, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Billion in DC. Have a great day, everybody.